Hello, Lions of Liberty fans. And you know, one great way to start out your day is with a shot of whiskey. But if you're not an alcoholic, the next best way to start your day is with an amazing cup of coffee. And now you can order coffee, delicious coffee, and also support the Lions of Liberty. We have partnered with Anarcho Coffee to create our own brand of coffee known as the Morning Roar. And let me tell you, this coffee is delicious. I am saying that as someone who just drank two cups of it before I recorded this pre-roll. So I can tell you, I'm a little hyped up, and I just had some delicious coffee. And I'd like you to be able to start your day the same way. So I want you to head over to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. You get a 10% discount with your very first order. And if you join the Lions of Liberty Pride for $10 or more per month, which you can do over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty, you will then get a permanent 15% discount on all future orders. And you're going to want future orders after you try this, let me tell you. But first, give it a shot. Head over to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee and start your day with a morning roar. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. I don't know what on earth kind of attempt at a feline type noise that was, but screw it. We're doing this live. We're keeping it all in. I don't care. It's probably the after effects of a pork fest still lingering a little bit. It was an amazing time at pork fest, but instead of telling you all about it right now, I'm just going to encourage you to join the Lions of Liberty Pride, our supporters on Patreon, which you can find more about at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. That's where you'll hear all the inside dirt, all of the nice stories on an soon-to-be-released, it may even be released by the time you're hearing this, episode of Degenerate Gamblers, our bonus show, sometimes about gambling, but mostly about whatever the hell we feel like talking about, which is often just funny stories of the things that happen to all of us lions and uh, friends of the lions out there in the world uh, and in our past lives, in our college days, because as longtime listeners know, we have all known each other for close to 20 years for some of us, which is a scary number. But that is part of the bond that we all have here at Lions of Liberty. It's, of course, it's not just me here every single Monday on the flagship show, of which this is the 407th edition, which means you can find today's show notes. And you will need them, by the way, uh, if you want to uh, skip to your favorite interviewee, because I will be laying out all of my Porkfest interviews that I conducted in today's episode, so you won't hear the stories, but you will hear the interviews from Porkfest, and they were very great. I got to uh, meet a lot of people you are familiar with, some you might not be as familiar with, but I'm not going to name them all here. You can just listen to the show and be surprised as you go, or you can head over to the aforementioned show notes, which you can find over at lionsofliberty.com slash 407. That is where I will put timestamps for your convenience uh, of everybody interviewed, so if there is someone you put in particular that you want to hear, you can just skip to that time code and you know move along with your, your merry way. Uh, otherwise, don't forget, besides this program, besides our drunken Democratic debate recaps that you're also getting in the feed uh, now that these debates are underway, it is also the home, this podcast feed, of my other Lions of Liberty compatriots, starting with Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday when he smacks you upside the head with his special brand of comedy, culture, and liberty known as Electric Liberty Land, while John Odie Odermatt wraps things up every single Friday here on Felony Friday 
This is the greatest podcast show on earth, my friends. The greatest variety show you have ever heard. Bringing you liberty three times per week. Three shows for the price of one. That price is free. You really can't get a better deal anywhere. And if you crave even more content and wanted to give us some money, we give you that option too by giving you tons of audio and video content in our bonus feed over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. And without further ado, I present to you the Porkfest Super Show! All right, I'm here at Porkfest with Matt Kibbe. Matt, how are you doing? doing? We shook hands off camera earlier, just so you guys know. This wasn't the first time, but it's a little weird. You're holding the microphone, but I'm interviewing you. I've got a lavalier. How are things? How you been? Because there's no rules. There's no rules. We're just going to see what happens. It's complete anarchy. This is is what happens when you unleash us on the world. Totally. Guests hold microphones is a whole weird thing, but uh, what brings you to Porkfest? So this is my second time, and I'm going to finally commit to come here more because I think... I think we're at this moment. Everyone says the libertarian moment is over. I'm like, no, it's a process. And I, I think we're stronger in pretty much every category, one of which is sort of education and culture. But, but this is an actual experiment in community building. And I want to see what happens. And I want to see if there's ways that, that we could all sort of magnify public awareness about what these guys are doing and how it is that all these guys, uh, many of whom are well-armed hippies, get along <laughs> Nobody gets hurt. Nobody's stuff gets taken. There's something magical about that. There's a lot of fun toys being worn around yeah, here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what do you think overall about the, just the mission of the Free State Project who puts on this event? Uh, just the idea of libertarians or like-minded people sort of moving to a, a certain locale and trying to change things in the local way and hopefully setting an example for others to do similar things across the world, whether it's sea setting, which you just had a panel on recently, yeah. or that kind of thing. What do you think about that strategy overall for liberty? Well, I, I think it's a I think it's a good strategy in the sense that I want to see if it works or not. I mean, I'm a former community organizer, and I will tell you that asking someone to travel across the country for a protest is a huge ask. Asking someone to pick up their family and move to New Hampshire is a massive ask. So you're you're not going to get sort of that it's a special sort of person that decides to do that. But there's a tipping point. Maybe like think about Haight-Ashbury in 1966-67 where it suddenly became the one place where everyone had to be. And you were there then, right? Yeah, well, I was totally there, yeah. <laughs> and I was three then. But, but you know, it, and that we were talking about this last night. It would be a cool problem to have if too many people showed up at Porkfest because it would create logistical problems and culture problems. But but freedom, of course, is the way that you that you solve those problems. And I'm, I'm hoping that this thing works, but... But I don't think we should put all our eggs in one basket. We should we should try podcasts. We should try politics. God help us. We should try all sorts of things that that might be the thing that creates sort of a, a liberty uh, surge. Yeah, that was one of the discussions we had earlier. Uh, it was about liberty and populism, yeah. and uh, sort of how libertarians should respond to populism because obviously you know populism gets people riled up. Uh, but it's not necessarily based in a, in a certain ethic or right, what have you. Right, right. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Just the idea of sort of how we can respond to populism waves that are going to occur regardless of whether we want them to or not. Yeah. How can libertarians best respond to the ideas be, being put out there by someone like, say, Trump, who's able to rile people up? Even though his answers aren't correct, he might be addressing a lot of problems that people sort of feel in tune with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I have a more benign opinion about populism because to me it's an empty vessel and it just means to be popular. And I think we want 
the ideas of liberty and the values that we all espouse to have a broader audience. So I would consider myself a libertarian populist. And to take it even a step further, when we were doing stuff for Rand Paul for president in Iowa in 2016, and Thomas Massey has said this, we discovered that the Ron Paul movement was half rage against the machine. He doesn't say it this way, but I will. And half liberty. Right. And, you know, he, you know, Massey said they just wanted the craziest son of a bitch in the room. But, you know, our narrative is half rage against the machine. We can talk all day about how government screws things up and screws people and, and enriches the, the corporate class and all these narratives we have. But we don't talk as much about the beautiful stuff that happens when people are free. So I, I think our magic is sort of the combination of those two things. But those should be populist stories like we we need to think about it in terms of how people are hearing what we're saying as opposed to just just saying that anything is populist is bad news pivoting back to the event that we're here at today at pork fest i know it's a little bit early in our time here but uh what's your favorite part about pork fest so far what's your favorite aspect of this whole event i like um well first of all the beer um, of course. And Especially I, if you got a VIP wristband. Then, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I of course, limited. stopped at a couple of my favorite breweries on the way driving in because this is this happens to be in a place where some of the best beers in the world are made. Um, Thanks to the laws that are somewhat there connected to the work of the Free State Project. Yeah. Beer, beer freedom is perhaps a more important measure than GDP or... <laughs> Or is there a beer freedom index that is published anywhere? Uh, we've tried to work on one, and it, it's uh, you have to abuse science a little bit to get to it. But but I, I measure that the, the real freedom of a state based on if I go in a grocery store and there's like a hundred different selections of triple IPAs, I'm feeling the freedom. So the beer, uh, the community, and the idea that they mix uh, substantial discussions about ideas, we're just hanging around the fire pit, hanging out. And, and enjoying the fact that, that we're not alone. Like, this is a this is a safe space for libertarians. We we can actually say what we believe here. And I think things like, you know, beers and, and that sort of thing are just a good way to connect to normal people. That's yeah. kind of a part of what we try to do with our podcast, is connect to regular people that might not get necessarily all the way into the weeds with a lot of the nerdy libertarian stuff. But having a beer with someone is the kind of thing you can connect to everybody on. Right. And maybe that leads to a political conversation about why in this state they're allowed to make uh, IPAs freer or something yeah, to that yeah. effect. You know? There is a I mean, obviously, every young craft brewer, um, in the context of Ludwig von Mises, an, it's an entrepreneur is is someone who wants to do something crazy and beautiful that that maybe no one else believes in. That's what entrepreneurship. And so you have all these young mic, micro and nano brewers that that start brewing this this beautiful beer that they really want their neighbors to dig. And the first thing that happens is they run into barriers to entry. Mm-hmm. Turns out that big beer and local government have gotten together and said, you can't sell that beer to your neighbor. You can't distribute that beer unless you go through a middleman. So it's a it's a great uh, teacher about crony capitalism and, and why we should be skeptical of, of government regulations that are supposedly supposed to help people. It seems like a lot of people, the non-political people in our lives, only start to listen to libertarian ideas, I think, when they actually run into the problems of the state in their real lives. Yeah. You know, Maybe when yeah. they're in college and they're just in academia, they think, oh, well, these, these theories sound great. And then suddenly, well, the tax bill hits, or I try yeah. to start a business. And then from there, we can actually kind of open that conversation a little bit and say, right. well, remember that stuff I was talking about that was kind of weird on the internet a few years ago? Yeah. Let's have that conversation a little more. Uh, what else are you involved with here at Porkfest? What are you, are you on any panels, giving any talks? So I'll be speaking in about a half an hour um, with a very innovative title, Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff. <laughs> But it's it's really about all we're you talking about. Publish the book, by the, by that Publish a book uh, New York Times bestselling book, where I tried to, to take all these ideas that I loved as a kid and translate them into stories in plain English. 
And, and I, I think we're at this moment, uh, certainly in American culture, but I would say global culture, where our challenge is our audience is too big. And we got to change our, our medium and our storytelling and, and even the, the words we use to reach a broader audience who aren't going to consume the kind of arguments that we use because they don't really process things as economics. They think about personal stories. They think about emotional stories. They think about values-based stories. So I'm going to be talking about that because, because I'm more optimistic than ever. I think this is our opportunity to reach a much broader audience, but we need a different set of tools to do it. All right. Well, Matt, it's been a blast talking well, to you. Yeah. We'll see you around Portfest. We'll see you in the VIP tent at the bar, I'm sure. We'll, we'll get beers. All right. Good times. All right, I'm here at Porkfest with Phil Magnus of the American Institute for Economic Research. Is that correct? That is correct. I nailed it. Yeah. And uh, you're actually telling me before that's your full-time gig now. You're no that longer in, in academia, so yeah, yeah, taking a break from teaching, doing full-time research. That's awesome. Yeah. So how how'd that work out? How did they approach you to to uh, pull you out of the university system and into this arena, yeah, so, which is really uh, your wheelhouse? So our, our president Ed Stringham is really kind of leading a renaissance of the organization. That we're uh, probably America's oldest free market think tank and research institute. Institute, but uh, it took over as president about two years ago and has just reinvigorated the research climate there. Uh, asked me if I wanted to be a full-time uh, uh, researcher, devote my uh, attention and time to uh, digging in, into some of the economic matters that I work on a uh, pretty regular basis, and you know, I've, I've really loved it. So. Awesome, man. So, uh, so what, what brought you to Porkfest specifically? Is this your first time? Yeah, first time here. I uh, came to talk about uh, income inequality and uh, lay out some new statistics that challenge some of the uh, prevailing narrative in the media about what uh, trends are in income concentration and what that means for tax policy. So I uh, came out for that, but then decided to hang out for the uh, the other talks. How, how do you approach that subject of income inequality from a libertarian perspective? Because as someone who lives in California, that's oh, yeah, something yeah. I hear a lot. Uh, it's something progressives are very concerned with, the idea that people just have disparity in the amount of income they earn. How do you address that issue from, I guess, your, your economic point of view? Yeah, so uh, my main focus right now is to get the stats right. Because uh, the political narrative is that inequality is rising and therefore we need high progressive income taxation to bring it down. So I go back through and figure out how that's calculated using IRS data, using uh, other statistics that can indicate in income and wealth and actually make some adjustments to how people change their behavior in tax reporting um, in response to the tax system. And what I find is when you do that, it, uh, it actually levels out the depicted uptick in the past 20 to 30 years that everyone's talking about. Really, inequality is not rising at anywhere near the level the public narrative uh, has embraced. Uh, and when that's the case, uh, it kind of obviates the uh, the call for higher taxation as the uh, solution to inequality. Do you think that the concept of inequality should even be a libertarian concern? I mean, let's just say even if the numbers told you yeah. something different, let's say the numbers did tell you that uh, you know there there is greater income dispar disparity. There are more billionaires and other people are staying down right, here. Right. If that were the case, would that be a concern from you from a libertarian perspective? So it doesn't change my life uh, any that uh, other people are doing very well and they're doing better than I am. Uh, I am living in a uh, a better, more technologically advanced world than people 20 years ago, 40 years ago, a century ago. Uh, I'm perfectly happy with that. 
But the fact is that uh, quite a bit of the political narrative has gravitated to this. Uh, there are politicians on the left and the far left that you, that's, they see this as an angle to get something that they've been denied on budgetary grounds or get something they've been denied on uh, spending grounds, and that's tax hikes. And they give it, we're not going to win by calling for more uh, uh, transfer programs. We're not going to win by uh, by calling for uh, increasing taxes out of fiscal responsibility, even though that's dubious itself. But they think that they, they can get the uh, kind of the foot into the door by campaigning on inequality. So they force that political narrative into the public sphere. And what I want to do is kind of check their work, hold them to account, um, keep them honest, and in areas where it's justified, you know, correct the data that we're seeing, and that's going to change the policy implications quite a bit. Uh, Phil, you were on a panel earlier today about yeah. uh, liberty and populism. Exactly. Uh, I think you and Nick Sarwark, the, the yeah. LP chairman, yeah. had a little bit of a, a disagreement. It yeah. was all very polite, didn't get heated, but uh, no, you a, have, I think, disagreement. I think so. you have somewhat of a different perspective on, on politics yeah. and how libertarians should approach politics. I think it, it was either you or maybe Dave David Schellenberger put it this way, but I thought you had similar views that libertarians kind of look at politics sort of defensively. Like, we'll get exactly. involved exactly. to defend ourselves, defend our rights, whereas Nick sort of sees it in more of a way that, you know, we should be more positive and forceful and, and right, right, right. showing people our, our, our views through politics. So you want to speak on that a little bit yeah, and just, you know, a little bit of that, that disagreement and maybe why you look at it in more of a defensive way as opposed to how we should be on the offense as others would take it. Right, right. So my whole take is that the state acts in very predatory ways. Uh, libertarians are probably unique in the sense that we're, we're the only people that engage any way, any form in the uh, political realm that aren't seeking power. Uh, whether it's on the left or the right, uh, all the other political parties, they want to govern. They want to rule over us. And that puts us in an odd position. Um, I, I agree to the extent that, uh, you know, if the Libertarian Party is able to field candidates, um, you know, it's better for them. Uh, I'm glad they're there raising that flag. They're giving uh, voters a choice. But I don't see that as an end to it. So if I see politics is, is kind of uh, desanctifying. And pork fence random children yeah. just yeah, exactly. interviews. Exactly. It's just the thing that happens here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, and, you know, I, I see the political realm is something that draws in corruption. And it even corrupts well-intentioned people uh, that seek out office. Because uh, what, what is politics? It's the allocation of resources that have been taken up from the taxpayers. It's the allocation of resources that have been centralized through the state that are offered as favors to try and get you on my team, get you to vote for me. Uh, that's an inherently corrupting process. It's something that allows the distribution of political rent. So I don't really see that as an end to itself that's going to lead anywhere. Meanwhile, uh, intellectual ideas, you know, we're, we're engaging in uh, serious substantive conversation. That's not for next year's election cycle. That's not for something three months from now. This is keeping a conversation alive and going for centuries. It's uh, it's keeping ideas that are worth defending viable, and that's more my strategy. So you see it, uh, you know, political involvement maybe more as like a bigger picture type thing where you do want to inspire people into the ideas. Sure. But looking at, so at, at the short term, can you think it can cause sort of a conflict of interest in the sense that if you have to sort of beg for a vote or beg for yeah. someone to like you, you almost inherently have to compromise your principles or you're going to be at least put in a position the, where that becomes, you know, an Right, issue. right. So the thing that would be necessary to win an election for someone like me would, would involve necessarily compromising my principles, uh, going to the voters and offering them another handout. Yeah. Whether it's from the left or the right, that's, that seems to be what motivates people to, uh, 
you know, take political stances. Uh, unfortunately, that's the system that we have, but that's not something that I could, uh, you know, wake up in the morning and live with myself and, and be content about. I'm curious what you think strategy-wise just of the whole idea of the Free State Project, of yeah. getting a bunch of like-minded people, having them move to the same kind of area, affect sure. the local sure. laws in that sort of way. Uh, what's your thoughts on that just as a strategy for liberty? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I approve of what they're doing. Uh, it, it's probably better for the political system in New Hampshire, but but really, what are they bringing to the table? These are people that are setting up shops and opening up businesses. They're uh, coming into communities and actually doing something. They're producing something. That is a thousand times more uh, powerful and effective than going to the ballot box once a year and casting a vote. So that's my whole take on it. Is It's great for New Hampshire. It's great for other states that wanted to do something like that. But uh, it's, it's you know, your life doesn't revolve around an election one time a year or one time every four years. Uh, you're, you're doing products for the community. You're, you're doing services for the community by setting up your business, by just partaking in economic life. Finally, Phil, uh, I know you got to take off soon, yeah. but, but what's been your favorite part of being here at Porkfest? Oh, just uh, hanging out with people, you know, sitting around the campfire at night uh, and talking with other, other intellectuals that are interested in serious, substantive conversation. Or unserious, it depends. Yeah, depending, yeah, there's, there's a, we uh, do a little bit of both. quality to it. So that's All right, Phil, thanks a lot, man. Yeah, it's been great absolutely. seeing you. Take thanks. care. Thanks a lot. All right, I'm here at Porkfest with the chairman, the chairman of the bar, the chairman of the Libertarian Party, Nicholas Sarwark. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. You know, just before this interview, I overheard you talking about how here at Porkfest, it's kind of like Twitter come to life. <laughs> Could, would you care to elaborate? So uh, there was a, a talk about free speech and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act where I pointed out that there really isn't a publisher platform distinction. That's not a thing that's in the law. You just have to use alternative platforms, and hopefully they'll get the other platforms out of the way if they're being too sensory. And some guy got up after me and said, you're actually wrong about the law. It really means something else. Uh, you don't, you don't understand the First the Amendment. It doesn't go well. And I was like, normally I have to be on Twitter to have people mansplain to me what law says. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a theme here, though. It's, it's, it's funny how... Sort of uh, the kind of conversations you're used to having on the internet suddenly just spring to life here at Porkfest in, in funny and interesting ways, I think you might say. <laughs> it's, been, it's been pretty entertaining. Uh, I've noticed that a lot of people that maybe are less pleasant on the internet are a lot nicer when they're in person with an arm's reach. Sometimes vice versa. Uh, what actually brought you here to Porkfest? Is this your first time? Have you been this here is before? my first time at Porkfest. I actually was an early Free State Project signer, and this year they invited me to come speak, do a couple of uh, panels, and... I came out. It's amazing. It's a wonderful time. And the panel you just did this morning was about uh, basically libertarianism and, and populism and sort of how, how we should respond to uh, the effects of populism in our sort of political culture. And I think you kind of had some dis disagreements with uh, Phil uh, Phil Magnus and David Schlesinger. They had sort of a, I guess th their take was more that libertarianism should take a sort of defensive outlook on politics. And you sort of had a different outlook on that. Would you care to expand a little bit on how you would disagree with just the framing of it as yeah. defensive? So there's a, a long history in libertarian thought that we are a tiny remnant that kind of keeps these ideas alive and for some future age where they'll be accepted by people. And I kind of reject that. I think that libertarianism has the opportunity to present positive solutions to people that can appeal to these same problems that lead to them following populists. We can provide good free market solutions to their problems and go on offense rather than staying on defense. Go out and try and win the election instead of just trying to make it be less bad. 
What are your responses to like an argument? I, th I think you hear a lot about the kind of candidates that libertarians should run. Is is a lot of people will concede? Well, we're not going to win anyway. And I know you take exception to that kind of that kind of take on things. We're not going to win anyway. So what do you say to people that have that attitude that if we're not going to win anyway, we should just put up whoever talks about liberty the best or whoever has the best ideas, and they don't necessarily want to factor in any of the normal things you might factor in when it comes to political races. Um, it's kind of like if you are a football team that has a really bad record in the year, and you go out against so the, the Buffalo number Bills, one okay, team, on. the Buffalo Bills, yeah, it's and you team. go out against uh, the New England Patriots, for example, who I think the Bills really just kind of love and they're friends with. Um, Every five years we get a win on them, but you, you know. want to go out there and still you still have to play by the rules of the game of football, right? You can't go out there and do interpretive dance just because we're not going to win. You have to go out and try and play by the rules. You can do some creative stuff when you're a last place team. You can throw some trick plays. You can do some things that are outside the box, but the game's still the game, and that's how libertarians I think should approach politics. Is yes. If you are unlikely to win, that means that you have a lot more freedom to do things. But some rules of politics, knocking on doors, talking to people, listening to their issues, they apply whether or not you're a long shot candidate or an establishment candidate. And so I think we should be bold in our messaging, but we should also remember that this is a game in which the score is determined by votes. And that's how we have to play the game. Uh, I'm not going to ask you as chairman to, to pick a specific person, but just kind of going off what you said there, what would your ideal Libertarian Party presidential candidate, essentially the, the person who's going to be the face of libertarianism in the 2020 cycle, what, were, what are some of the qualities that that, that kind of person would, would have? So ideally, I want to see a Libertarian presidential candidate that is as close as possible to the Libertarian Party platform. So that there's fewer things that you have to either explain that there's a difference or apologize for. And that also creates a longer term solution, right? If a, if a candidate runs on the platform, the platform's still there after the campaign's over. People are more likely to stick around. But I also want somebody who has the organizational skills to raise a lot of money, to get on the phone with donors, to be able to get media interviews, handle them well, present our ideas well, create a positive message for people. So I, I want a good candidate who's a good libertarian and finding that right balance because sometimes you get a really great libertarian who's not so good at, with the people. There's a couple people like that. Or you'll get somebody who's really great with the people but is um, not totally aligned with all of the platform. You want to find that happy medium where it's a lot of both even if you can't maximize anyone. How do you manage trying to uh, find that medium or, or keep everyone happy within the Libertarian Party, whereas I'm sure you realize people have very different opinions on these sorts of things? And, I mean, are, are there certain lines where you would just say, you know, this person is in no way a Libertarian, should, should not be associated with the party, or are there kind of situations where you say, okay, this person believes in 80% of what we say. 20%, I agree, I'll state that this person's wrong, but they have so many other great qualities and get the message out there in such a way that we should still welcome them in. Where where do you sort of draw that? I mean, not, not specifically kind of position-wise, but how do you sort of try to find that balance? Yeah, so um, somebody asked me this the other day about Tulsi Gabbard, who has a couple of libertarian positions on um, foreign intervention, for example, but on a lot of things is not very in line with the libertarian platform. I encourage anyone who wants to fight for human freedom, who wants a freer country, who agrees with us on any number of issues, to come and join the Libertarian Party and work with us together to try and make this a more free country. When it comes to the presidential candidate, 
That's going to be up to the delegates. So if Howard Schultz, who really cares a lot about the national debt, but maybe is off of us on things like gun control, wants to seek our nomination, I encourage him to do it. I leave it to the delegates in Austin next May. They're going to decide what's libertarian enough. I'm not the gatekeeper. I'm like the, I'm the recruiter. I bring people in. That's the not delegates what I saw on the decide, internet. I don't know. They the delegates me. decide whether or not they get nominations, right? Uh, finally, Nick, what's your favorite part of being here at Porkfest, especially with it being your first time? Obviously, it's cool to have the VIP bracelet. That helps, but... <laughs> it definitely helps uh, as far as having free drinks and food all the time. That's pretty cool. Well, there's no such thing as a free drink. That's a, That's, a phrase I saw somewhere. Uh, it's it's uh, the theme of our upcoming convention. But, um, no, it's just the sense of community, I think, is the best thing that I've found being here at Porkfest. I've heard about it for years, you know, kind of staying involved in the Free State Project, even though I haven't been able to move yet. And actually being here and seeing how people just come together, there's a lot of cooperation, mutual aid, all the things we talk about and what we want to see in that outside society, are those values are here. And when you feel them, there's something about it. It's like addictive. I don't know. Is this your first time? I was here last year. So, yeah. Did you feel that vibe? Did you feel like, you know, maybe I don't want to live where I live right now? Maybe well, I, I didn't feel that be specifically because I live in California and the weather's very nice. But <laughs> but I, you do feel the sense of community where you can just be around the campfire and, you know, you hear someone talking about the Fed and that's not weird. Whereas if I'm at a bar in L.A. and I hear that, I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> so it, it is an interesting thing to be in a place where people all sort of have the same vibe, even if we disagree on all sorts of random things in the middle of the night, but we all are here for the same similar sort of reason that we all want to see a freer world in our lifetimes, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, thanks a lot. I'll see you around. Thanks Take so care. Much. I'm here with Max Gulker at Porkfest from A-E-I-R, the American... No, did I mix the I and the E? I always do that. A-E-R. It's a lot of vowels in a row. It's a There's so many vowels. It's worth learning. And I bought but, none of them yeah. with Bitcoin. Yeah. But uh, Max, what exactly brings you here to Porkfest? Well, I um, was had the great opportunity on the first day on Tuesday to talk to people about kind of my own path to um, liberty and really viewing liberty as the primary means that we want to organize our society by. I was saying at the time, I think a lot of the audience, that made sense to them when they were kids, they read certain books, it all clicked. Um, that's not my story. I had a very different kind of mainstream, they would say, economics education relative to a lot of folks around here. Um, I came from a very left-wing family. I was always kind of a Democratic voter. And then over the last 10 years, I just discovered... Um, several strands of economics that kind of just moved me in this direction and made me see that, you know, the types of uh, ways we want to help each other um, are better accomplished in um, a society with, with, you know, unimpeded individual liberty. Yeah, I always find it interesting meeting people that came from left-wing backgrounds yeah. because they're often imbued with that sort of... Um, the quality of just wanting to help people, wanting to see people do better, but then they meet that point in the road where they realize everything that they've been told about how to do that is completely wrong, and right. actually does the opposite. Do you remember like a moment in time where you kind of had a light bulb go off that you realized, wait a minute, my heart is in the right place, but the things I'm advocating right. are actually hurting people, and well, there's a totally well, different way to look at this. Yeah, maybe a couple of them. I, I remember, so about the end of the road for me was 2008, I voted for Barack Obama. 
look around, make sure that. And um, and and I thought he was gonna be great. I thought he was gonna change things and good governance and this and that. And a, a year later, I realized no, this is just the mirror image of the last president we had in the opposition party. And everybody's kind of going to their sides and blaming their people again. And I thought to myself, if this happens over and over again, there must be a reason. And maybe the reason is it's just not possible to be a good president. Maybe this. Maybe we can't just elect somebody who's going to be smart and have good ideas and why is that and around the same time i think i first delved into hayek you know i had a phd from economic in economics and i had really never studied hayek at all which is um to the detriment of many grad programs around the country but i um discovered his paper about information in society and then it all clicked to me of why you can't with the best of intentions control things from the top down why that kind of cause and effect doesn't work um, and that was that was those were that was kind of a major turning point for me. What about uh, what are your thoughts on what the Free State Project is doing specifically? Just their their general idea yep. of moving people of a certain political mindset to the, a geographic area and trying to fe- affect things on this local level yep. and maybe setting an example for people across the country or the world, Absolutely. et cetera, to do the same thing. Well, well, setting an example is hugely important because most people are not going to believe our vision of. Um, the vastly less government that we want until we show them. They that, picture Mad Max. Until we show them, yeah. Up. Until we show them that there are better ways of doing it, that we have better ways of doing it, and then that's gradual and that's over time. But that's when the government withers away. So something like this, um, which is sort of leading by example, showing people, I think, how important a community is. I think this gentleman off camera actually may have said uh, that the community. <laughs> Um, sort of gave him a lot of work um, in the last year. Yes. Pay no exactly. attention to the man that's, behind the curtain. That's, that's exactly the type of thing it's, it's that I envision everywhere if we could, you know, really move towards greater individual liberty in our society. It's not that we're not taking care of people who are struggling. It's that we can take care of people who are struggling better. It's that once you get out of the way, we can actually do the help and not just this other nonsense. Uh, What is your favorite part of being at Porkfest, Max? So I, have I know there's a lot been, to choose from. Um, I've been just amazed by the crowd and the people here and just the, the you know, we, we go to a lot of conferences where libertarian economists present papers and get drunk at night. And that's that's lovely. And here and we, we get drunk during the day. Well, yeah, so. exactly. 24 <laughs> seven. But um, just just connecting with people from, I guess, all walks of life who really are, you know, believe in all of this and, um, you know, are just here because they want to be, not because it's their job necessarily. Uh, it's it's really cool and it's a different slice of people than I guess you see kind of otherwise sometimes. Max, I want to make sure we get our plugs in. So why don't you tell everybody what you're doing at the American Institute for Economic Research. I think I got the letters in the right yes. order this time. So uh, what are you uh, guys along with my colleagues, Phil Magnus and Jeffrey Tucker, uh, there we go. Um, we are putting out, we think, some of the, basically the best commentary, economic commentary in, in the wider manner. You totally um, believe that it's the best. Right, right, exactly. We're, 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 we're of course, biased. But um, we have great content that's aimed at people who are not professional economists, who are just people who are into this kind of stuff that goes up on our site every day. Um, I tend to work maybe about half my time on issues of technology, 
kind of scratching the surface of all of this like antitrust with Google and Facebook right now. And about half the time I really work on policy. And that's exactly what we were just talking about, about how can we do things better in a decentralized way that some people on the left might assume only their friendly nation state can do. Uh, since you brought it up, I'm kind of curious, just real quick, what's your, your take on how libertarians should approach the idea of big tech censorship? We see a lot of demonetization, not just of libertarians, but of people of all sorts of radical views. Yeah. Um, from the very pure free market standpoint, we can say that's their right. Uh, others would say at some point, some of these companies become so big and so imbued with government that maybe we should view them in, in a sort of a different way. So what's your view on how we should approach that from the libertarian it's angle? It's difficult because with these tech companies, especially their size and the quality of the product they're providing are sometimes positively correlated because of things like network effects where, you know, everybody's in a network, things get better. Or, um, you know, Google's ability to take its previous searches and give you kind of better searches. Um, we have to, I, I, I've written a little bit about, you know, saying, look, whatever you think of regulators, the regulators aren't going away tomorrow. So what they should be doing here is saying, you companies disclose very clearly how you're going to use people's data in a straightforward way. And at that point, consumers really have to become more intelligent um, customers and really, really take that kind of use of data as a margin on which they think. And then, you know, we can get to probably better places with it. Um, it's something that you know, nobody likes their control over information. I worry that if we unleash antitrust on it, we unleash antitrust on a lot of other things, sort of unavoidably. So we have to think about other ways, you know, as as a group to to move away from those platforms if they're doing things we don't like. Yeah, I mean, on a recent podcast, I was interviewing Carrie Wedler, who was the platform from Twitter, and, uh, you know, her, but it, her point was kind of similar to yours. Like, if we invite in the regulators, they're not going to be protecting the libertarians. That, right, that's right. not whose speech they're going to well, be protecting. Yeah, I, think, so. I think when Mark Zuckerberg went to Congress, they said something like, well, have the regulations you think there should be on mo on our desk on Monday. And it was okay. Like, okay, and, sounds yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's, yeah, we're like, oh my God, and everybody else doesn't notice it. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, Max, it's been a blast talking All to you. Right. Have a Thank Thank continue to have a great much. time at Porkfest. Right. We'll see you in the VIP tent. All right. Take care. <laughs> I always mess it up. I, I feel like Brian's going to try to talk to me in the middle of this interview. It's all right. It'll be part of the fun. All right. All right, here we go. We're recording all that Jason! stuff. Jason! See? All right. This is part of it. How are you, my friend? Oh, my okay, God. It's Jason Stapleton. And Jeffrey Tucker, what a reunion! Yeah, this is great stuff. See, man. What's up, man? Good to Maybe see I shouldn't be both at once. Like Ten years younger. No, I don't, I don't, I don't you. want you to take Jeffrey Tucker's. Uh, <laughs> are you mic'd? I'll, I'll do it later. No, you're just not mic'd. He really wants to interview you. All right, okay. All all right, right, what do go. you want? It's your show. I, I'm mic'd here, so if you guys share that mic, we can all do a three-way thing. It'll be fun. All right, cool. All right, I'm here at Porkfest with. Two of the studs of the Liberty Movement. I'm Mike. I'm good. You're good. I appreciate it. I was going to introduce myself. I got a lavalier. With Lions of Liberty. Right, well, who are you? Who oh, are you? Who is this bow tied man? With Lions of Liberty, my awesome uh, podcast, which I've been, I've been building for years and now I'm Epica's results. But I have one question for our special guest today, Jason Mr. Stapleton. Jason Stapleton, welcome to Portland. <laughs> because you are the special because guest. Because you showed up in the middle yeah. of our Brian interview, so that's why. No, but the question is this Like, everybody knows you have the best podcast on the planet Earth, second only. To, uh, to Lions of Liberty. Uh, how did you do it, and how did you manufacture that work ethic that caused you to be so awesome? I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how I got the way it was. I just. I, I had a. Sh I had a show. I had an idea. I wanted to talk about stuff that I couldn't talk about in my business, and I wanted to talk about economics and politics and what I thought would create a better world. And uh, and so I just started a show. It actually started out as a financial show, not a. Uh, 
not a political show. And then I kind of saw an opportunity in 2015 for the election in 16, and we kind of we kind of modified what we talked about and how we how we positioned the show, and it it kind of blew up. And uh, and I don't know. Now we've kind of we've kind of molded again as I start to see some changes that are happening in in culture and politics, and I'm trying to have a, a greater impact on actually shaping culture rather than just. Um, talking about politics specifically, and and uh, and we'll see if we can grow it from there. I don't I don't know. It's I, it's I don't, I don't I think it's funny when people say when people talk about you that way because I don't I don't ever think about that kind of thing. Well, every morning I wake up in my, my Google Home. Who suck? talks about yeah. who that way? I, I wake up and I say to my Google Home, "Play Jason Stapleton." <laughs> she says, "Let's go." <laughs> Here he is, and you speak to me she while says, I'm lying it, in bed. I'm listening. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, thank you. That's really nice of you. I, I have no, I have no retort for that. No, but you've obviously and then you're got like, oh, all right, uh, now play Lions of Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear myself, everyone. But uh, every once in a while, you have me on. Thank you. It's an honor. I, I like the flip interview. I want you to interview me now. Let's let's flip the script. Well, there's one more question for Jason because because uh, you've got a lot of fans and a lot of how should I say. Hardcore fans, but do you get a lot of hate mail? Oh yeah, all the time. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah. I probably have as many haters, if not more, than I have yet fans. Yeah, absolutely. How do you do? What well, you're shocked about that? <laughs> well, you don't have haters. Well, you're very compelling. I, well, I do have haters, but you're very, you're more compelling than I am. So I, I don't care what I don't care what they have to say. Like it's not that I don't care. I don't care what their opinion is because I do. It's I, it's just I don't care if they want to hate on me. You know, if you want to talk about my ideas or the way I want to, I think things ought to operate, um, or you want to criticize me for an opinion, that's okay. I don't mind that. But you know, you want to attack me personally, um, you know, I, I just, I just shut you out. I, I, it's, it's funny because everybody talks about how uh, we just interviewed uh, Dave Rubin. Yeah. And Dave was taught. Dave is is famous for just banning people on Twitter when they when they get mouthy. And, and there's this assumption that you just have to sit there and take it. That oh, it's a free market, so you should have to sit there and just suffer the abuses that people sling at you all day online. It's like no, just shut them off. Do you mute or do you ban? Uh, it I, it depends. If they're really nasty, I'll ban them. If they if I just get tired of hearing them, I'll just mute them. Sometimes I think people want to be banned, and so I realize I don't ban. Well, that's becoming that sort of a libertarian badge of honor, I think, to get banned from Facebook or banned from some kind of platform. Right. It's something yeah. people want to do, and they can say, look, I've been banned. That means I'm fighting the man. Yeah, they screenshot it. Means you're probably just posting something dumb. But, yeah. You know. yeah. yeah, I'd rather just, like, mute and so they don't even have the satisfaction of having been banned. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a more passive-aggressive yeah. approach. Well, and you get these guys who they, they set up brand-new accounts just to come and attack you. That's how you know you're really having an impact, is if somebody's, somebody's angry enough about you that they'll actually start a brand-new account just to come attack so you. So this is an important point I think we could all learn from. Like, we think criticism is criticism. It's actually compliment because they're taking the time to come after you. Yeah. That means you matter. Oh, and I'm really fond of when somebody attacks me like that is just say, hey, uh, thanks for listening. You know, tell a friend. <laughs> appreciate, appreciate you adding to those download numbers. Please baby. retweet. Yeah. So, uh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, as long as you're listening, I don't really care whether you like it or dislike it. Just, I just hope you listen every day. Well, Jason, you're making a huge difference, as is the Lions of Liberty podcast in general. So, I mean, that's how we're going to fight the, the beast, you know, that's by telling the, telling the truth and being fearless and um, morally courageous. And I consider both of you 
to be uh, in the ranks of the morally well, courageous. These guys, these guys are doing some really great stuff. They got a lot of different shows going right now, and uh, they, it's just it's it's building and it's growing. And, uh, and there's more other guys too that are doing great work. But you guys have specifically just continued to start new shows and try new things and different angles just to try and bring in as many listeners as you can. And, and it's you know it's it's paying off. We never stop roaring. That's yeah. that's the motto. Yeah. And so that's that's what we need more guys who are willing to do that and put in the legwork and actually be willing to just get abused and put in the because it's hours and hours of work. If you t- if you talk about how much effort is goes, it's not into just glamour. Yeah, you, I mean, I'm talking about one show an hour, uh, hour to two hours, and these guys are doing multiples. It's just like it's constant, and it's not an it's it's not a living. It's it's a it's a piece. It's like it's so enough you're not to keep a living it going. Off this I, well, <laughs> what do you call a living? So. We but live in LA. You know what I'm nothing yeah, nothing. Yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. For for most people who do it, they're not paying their bills with it. They're making enough to pay to do the show, and they do it because they love it. And it's a vocation and a moral obligation. I've been really inspired by Jordan Peterson in this respect. I mean, he really makes this point that we have to just lean in and tell the truth. It's the only real weapon we have against totalitarianism is telling the truth. Yeah, that's a that's a great quote. I don't know if that's your quote or someone else's, but no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's true. And Peterson's done a great job, and he's been able to create a an established brand out of that. He's just really done. He's done a really nice job of positioning himself to to have a huge impact. And, and it wasn't even positioning; it was like a passion. He just like flowed from him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I he, I think that I think that he saw an opportunity and he really capitalized on it. I think that the, he he had that that book really gave him an outlet, and it created enough haters that it raised his profile, and he just ran with it. And, That's a lesson. Like the more haters you have, you can actually convert that. Well, to, he did, see, he did something that most people don't do: is that when people attacked him, he didn't try and he didn't apologize. He didn't try and restate. He just leaned in and doubled down. He said, "No, no, you think that's you think that's hard? Let me let me give you a, let me give you a taste of what I really think." And that's absolutely the best thing that you can do is you don't apologize for what you believe. You double down and lean in, and uh, and and it, it's worked for him and every other person who tries it. So, I mean, anyway, it's our job. So, thank you both. <laughs> it's been for great me, being here on, on my, uh, the Jeffrey Tucker Show, <laughs> Lions of Liberty. <laughs> Hey friends, I got to take a quick pause here to tell you about another great libertarian podcast out there. It's called Free Man Beyond the Wall, hosted by the artist formerly known as Mance Raider, now known simply by his real name of Pete Raymond. And I got to tell you, Pete is a machine. This guy brings you a new episode of his own every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and he has done some absolutely fantastic in-depth interviews. He's had on everybody from Ron Paul to Thaddeus Russell to Phil Labonte, the lead singer of All That Remains, a very diverse group of guests, not always libertarians. He also did a great show with a Washington, D.C., insider lobbyist revealing a lot of the dirt that goes on behind the scenes in DC. He has done so many interviews that I have just said, darn, I wish I did this one myself. So I really do want to highly recommend checking out Freeman Beyond the Wall. You can find it over at freemanbeyondthewall.com as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and all those fancy podcatchers out there. And we're going to pretend as if you're the host? No, we're not going to pretend that you can still be the host. Now we're back. We're back on the Jeffrey Tucker Show on the Lions of Liberty Podcast well, Network. Let me just say, who's your who's your guest today, Jeffrey? Uh, my, my guest today is me. Uh, 
But really, as it is every uh, week, I, I admire all, everything you've done too, thank and you. I appreciate that I've been on the show several times, and I'm glad to be back on. Cool. So thank you. Uh, how, how many pork fests have you been to? I know you're here last year. No, is this a regular stop for you? Six. And can I just tell you very quick? Yeah. So like, here's what happens to me when I arrive at pork fest. Like. And I speak all over the world. You know, big events, blah, 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 blah. I'm always a little bit anxious and, oh, my God, oh, my God, what I'm going to... When I arrive at Porkfest, my, 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 I feel my, my spirit settle and my heart relax. And I know that I'm among friends. And we're all here equal. And we're all just human beings who love human freedom and trying to figure it out. And that's what I love about this guy. I get so intellectually inspired from this event. I'm always really happy during the week. Yeah. Sorry, my producer is uh, is intervening here. Uh, yeah, what, what, what? <laughs> you got the mic over there, asshole. You don't need to listen to me. I'm just talking. To the it's all part of the fun. It's all part of the fun of Porkfest. I look forward to seeing drunk Jeffrey Tucker tomorrow. Morning, walk over the morning. Morning. You think I'm not You can drunk see him right, right now. now. <laughs> What's tomorrow? What do you mean? Hungover <laughs> drunk. Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> decided that uh, Jeffrey and Jason they are going to team up for the beer pong tournament. I like this idea. I like this idea too. I only recently J &J. learned what beer pong is. I've never actually played it. Last year watching us. Yeah, that was an educational experience. The kind of I'm things you learn at Portfest. That's article. my point. You come here and learn things. That's the idea. After this weekend, I expect the Jeffrey Tucker, Tucker article, Beer Pong is Liberty. I want this to happen. <laughs> I, I feel like to, you can I, make it work. I, I need to understand the, 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 the history and meaning of this sport. Uh, I'm sport, respectfully. Yeah, no, I'm very respectful of it. Like it's a big commercialized game now because you know you can buy beer pong tables that float in swimming pools. Yes, you probably buy don't them, know they this. They sell them with pre-filled yeah. cups in yeah, there. Yeah, maybe you don't know. I I know about beer pong tables. I know a thing or two. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, what are you? Were you doing any panels this week? Any, I'm sure yeah, you I think did, you have a speech uh, gave, Wednesday night. I gave right? a, a weepy emotional talk yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually devastating. Because, like I'm a happy guy, right? I'm like, oh, liberty's great, or whatever. I've never heard that about and you. People always okay. say, oh, uh, he's, he's always saying happy things. Well, of course they assign me the talk on reflect on on the meaning of our heroes who are in jail. Uh, and who have otherwise been in trouble with the law. Julian Assange and, and Ross Albrecht, Edward Snowden, who's in exile, and Chelsea Manning's like facing no end, end to legal difficulties. And so I had to get, I, I, they gave me a full hour on this topic. And so I talked about the metaphysics of humanness and what it means to be detached from all the people you love and be surrounded only by your captors and how that causes you to look within yourself deeply to figure out what is the source of your humanity. Who am I? What do I believe in? We all become Viktor Frankl when we're arrested, basically. And, and, and the spiritual connection that exists between us, who are sort of free, we at least we think we are, and the unlucky among us who are not. And, and how we can reach them and support them and our moral obligation to do so. So I talked about this for a full hour, and I was so touched because people were crying. It was very nice. I was crying. Everybody was crying. And then this great man came up to me afterwards, and he said, Look, I was in jail for 18 years, and your talk meant the world to me. And I said, thanks so much. He goes, can I give you a hug? I said, sure. So he hugged me and like, man, that was a big hug. <laughs> I mean, it was like, <clears throat> and he patted me on the back. That was a jail was, in 18 years <laughs> hug right there. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, wow, that was really meaningful. But anyway, so that was my talk yesterday. I was really, I, you know, I resisted giving the talk, but, you know, sometimes I've learned that it's important to be challenged and do the thing you don't really want to do. Did you resist because you thought it wasn't necessarily your well, wheelhouse? Or? Yeah, it's like I don't want to be like making everybody sad all the time, you know. 
That's not what I do. I'm the happy but, guy. But I, so. yeah, I'm supposed ah. to be the happy guy, the burden for breakfast guy. You know, but so, but this is a reality we have to deal with, that there's a lot of suffering in our midst. And so I was really glad, in the end, I was happy to talk about it. And I tell you, when I got in front of the microphone, I had no idea what I was going to say for the full hour. That's but the best I, way to do it. But, but I let it I, I let hosted it a panel this morning, same strategy. Yeah. No, it's really what I'm saying. It's, kind of, it's, like, it's more authentic, you know, that way. And and then a little bit, I'm talking about crypto, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about crypto. I hope it's not gonna be the repetition of the toxic crypto world on Twitter, which is like. Well, no libertarians ever talk about it as the good thing, so you know it's, it's always it's always new content. Uh, you you are very passionate about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies yeah, yeah. in general. What if you could just sum up to somebody, if you ran to somebody who had never heard of cryptocurrency before, wasn't a libertarian, maybe just a random person in an elevator, which you don't find here at Borkfest. But what would you tell to like a layman about why they should be interested in, in something like cryptocurrency? Uh, because because national currency is going down, we're at the ending stages of the age of monopoly nation-state money. That it's that the cat's out of the bag. We've already invented something new, and it's much better. And <clears throat> I would give it five years, honestly. I mean, I'm serious. About you mean that. five years until like it's universally accepted, or five no, years until the until the dollar is no longer the world reserve currency? It's serious matter. And once right. that happens, it's kind of all downhill for fiat in general. I think that's right, and it's a downhill for the American empire, which is both good and bad. Like we've had a good run of it. Less death, good. Yeah. Yeah. Economic collapse, not, yeah, as, ex- not as nice. You summed yeah. it up. You summed it up. And I, I can actually demonstrate this empirically. This is not just like my f- fantasy. This is actually happening. The dollar's teetering as the international uh, world reserve currency. Um, and ironically, it's Trump that's killing it. So, and and actually, do you, do you even more ironically, the tariff stuff is that what, well, we've and they relinquished the, the obligation to support the world trading system. And you can't do that if you're going to be the world reserve currency. Those go together. With uh, with great power comes great responsibility, and we're like, yeah. Peter Parker, 1967 yeah. or yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and so we're like, yeah, give us that power, but we don't want the responsibility. It doesn't work, and so that's going down. And then, then we've also got Facebook leaning in with its own uh, stablecoin, and it's a global stablecoin. And the New York Times was absolutely hilarious this morning, because you know <clears throat> we pay attention to these things, but like the mainstream doesn't. They're like, oh, Bitcoin, that's weird. Oh, ha ha. But now that Zuckerberg's all in, oh, what's, what's cryptocurrency now? Yeah. Now so, we're so the New York Times ran an article this morning, and then they're like, "No, don't you understand? Maybe you don't understand. Currency and finance—that's the job of the nation-state. Like that's for democratic institutions to approve or disapprove. Our regulators." They're voted in by us. So you know that they're on our side yeah, right? since we clicked so the box was, and the was, thing. It so. was a straight-up state theory of money. And, and, and a sense Shocking of, for the New York Times. Yeah, you would never, yeah, never just see Just a coming. sense of panic. Like, you can't just make your own... What are you thinking? You think you can make your own currency? Nobody's allowed to do that. <laughs> Unless they have government at the end of their name. But it's funny because Facebook is a global company, right? And they're like, oh, it's I mean, You could argue currency. they're more powerful than some governments. Probably more, more powerful than in like, a strange the way, government. even though you and I daily regret the presence of the total state in our lives, it's going down. It's going down in a in a long-term sense. Like, they're losing power. Private markets are taking over the world. Sometimes fascistically and sometimes not always the way we like, but we're living through this transitional stage. 20th century was the age of the total state. 21st century is going to be the age of the collapse of the total state. What comes next? We don't entirely know, but 
I don't think it's going to be the nation state that controls it. What do you think about, in many ways, the opposite of the nation state, uh, the strategy of the Free State Project, kind of building these very local communities of like-minded people coming together, trying to affect the community well, around them in a, in a more direct way? Yeah, what means a lot to me about Porkfest is its authenticity. I mean, there's nobody here who came to Porkfest and said, yeah, I'm going to get rich. Just I gotta come, yeah, <laughs> I got to come to Porkfest and make a lot of money. No, it doesn't happen like that. There's not a single person here who's not here out of one reason only, and that's love. Love for liberty and wanting to be around their uh, f friends and family. I mean, and when I say family, I mean even strangers. Like, I can walk up to anybody here and say, uh, it's great to be here. And like I say, it's good or great to have you here. And I, I feel like these are my compatriots, you know. Sure. Well, that's a great way to wrap things up, Jeffrey. It's been a pleasure, and Thank I'll you. be seeing you around Thank all you. week. Yeah. Take Thank care. You. Thank you. All right, I'm here with the man himself. The producer of Porkfest, the host of the Lava Flow podcast. Fuck me in the neck. It's Roger Paxson. What's up, Roger? Man, I'm just so glad to be here, and I'm so glad to have you guys here for the second year in a row. I mean, you guys are the life of the party of VIP until you tear shit up like he's doing over there. But thank you so much for coming, man. Off camera, uh, the Lions of Liberty just uh, broke something, so that was funny. Uh, <laughs> how, many, how many years have you been, have you been come? Wow, I cannot talk today, my friends. How many years have you been coming to Porkfest? So this is my fourth pork fest. Um, the first time we came with the family and just enjoyed it, and we loved it so much we wanted to be involved. So the second year we ran all the field activities and the two main uh, spaces for speakers, uh, and then the third year and the fourth year we have been the producers of the event. Yes, and how long have you actually lived in New Hampshire as part of the Free State Project? We moved here in October of 2015, so, shit, I can't do the math, whatever. Yeah, I believe that's four years. Yeah, close enough. Um, and we moved from Arkansas, which, uh, you know, Arkansas is a shithole. Don't ever go to Arkansas. <laughs> Sorry for my friends that live there, um, but it's a shithole. Don't go there. Uh, it, New Hampshire just drew us here because we were looking for new opportunities, and this gave it to us. So, Kick ass, man. So what's your favorite part of being at Porkfest over the years, especially now that you get to produce it and you're involved in putting this event on? Has that changed your perspective a little bit from just being someone who gets to come and hang out and not worry about you know security and scheduling and that sort of thing? Oh, hell yeah, because, you know, the first year we came, it was, you know, it was a great event. We got to enjoy it. We never got to see the behind-the-scenes stuff. We didn't really know anybody much when we were here. and uh, But then being involved is an entirely different ballgame. I mean, herding cats. You know, you say herding cats is a problem. Try herding 1,000 or 1,200 libertarians. Fuck that shit. It is so hard. But we but we love it. It is incredibly, it's incredibly rewarding. You know, when we get to hang out with people like you and Lynn Ulbricht and Vermin Supreme and all these awesome people. Everybody except Jason Stapleton, of course. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Too bad he walked away. Um, I mean, it's just so rewarding to see everybody having such an awesome time. And our goal, of course, getting people to Porkfest, is to make people fall in love with this gorgeous state and, and want to be a part of this huge event that we're doing here, this huge migration, and come to New Hampshire. I mean, that's our goal for Porkfest. Well, speaking of the, the migration, have you noticed an uptick in interest in the Free State Project, especially since the move was actually triggered, I, I believe it was last year? Um, have you seen more people coming to this event and actually like talking to you guys about coming here, moving here, and then all that? So you're wrong, of course, as usual. We did it three and a half years ago. We triggered the move three and a half years ago. Um, so, <laughs> of course, you're wrong. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the numbers keep growing, the, the number of movers. Now, will we hit 20,000 by the five years, which is what we're hoping for? No. Right now, we have about 5,000 libertarians in the state, which is awesome. I mean, that's better than I could have hoped for. Um, and more people are moving every day. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've met just this week who have moved within the last week or two just to get, live here before Porkfest. 
I mean, we hear that every year. So the big question is, what's going to happen after that five years? Do we continue on trying to get people here? Do we just let it kind of just fizzle, you know, do what it's doing? That's what we're trying to figure out as far as the FSP goes now. Now, Roger, last night I ran into you at one point, and I think you had some kind of eyeliner or some such thing on, as did the, the chairman of the Libertarian Party. What was actually going on there? Well, so we both had eyeliner and purple lipstick on, and uh, it was peer pressure. I mean, you know, beautiful women said, hey, it's 80s party night. You know, put on some eyeliner, look like Depeche Mode or, or uh, The Cure or whatever. So so we did and had a great time with it. You know, if I got a beautiful woman, you know, wanting to play with my face, okay, I'll take it. Uh, Roger, after doing this for a couple of years, producing the event, do you plan to continue to try to do this in terms of the back inside, or are you just kind of over it in the sense of, you know, it's so much work that you just want to maybe kick back next year? What are your thoughts? I know it hasn't even ended yet, so it might be a little preemptive, but what are you feeling? You know, so last year was really challenging for us as first-time producers. There was a lot of drama and stressful events that happened. So after that, you know, we knew we were going to do this for two years. After last year, we said, okay, we're totally done after two years. We're never going to do it again after this one. But this has been such a more chill event, um, not only from a back-end perspective, but also just the people that are here seem to be having so much fun that, I don't know, Jess and I maybe have talked a time or two this week that, hey, if it could be this good next year, maybe we'll do it again. I, I don't know. Because we love doing this. I mean, it is it is such a passion of ours to volunteer and work on things like this. Jess says that my wife, that if she could have any dream job, it would be to be a paid libertarian events director. Well, she's the events director for the Free State Project now, and it's going great. So we'll see how it goes. Last question, Roger. I know this is something that people have been wondering about you for a long time. Uh, have you ever actually fucked someone in the neck? Many people, yes. I mean, it's funny you say that because I remember Chris Spangle asking on one of our League of Liberty uh, podcasts, how do, you, how do you fuck somebody in the neck? Well, you put your dick in their mouth. I mean, that's how you fuck somebody in the neck. So, yes, I've done that many times. If this was G-rated before, that just ended. Roger Paxson, thank you so much. We'll be hanging out the rest of the weekend here. Love you, brother. All right, I'm here at Porkfest with the author of Machinery of Freedom, David Friedman. Welcome. Pleasure Thank you. To meet I you again. Always you? enjoy being yes. at Porkfest uh, with lots of small kids and dogs and friendly people. I <laughs> notice there's the dodgeball game. We got the going dodgeball on going on right behind us. Maybe we'll jump into the fray after this. Uh, how many? How many years have you been coming here to Porkfest? This is at least my third, and I know I was here in 2013 because I discovered that I used the same talk title then that I'm about to use here, which I hadn't realized. But I was looking through my Oh, outlines of old talks, and there was one for Porkfest 2013. What is the talk you'll be giving later later on today? On legal systems very different from ours. That's my most recent book, uh, and it includes Imperial China and Periclean Athens, but also modern Amish and Romani. I'm actually going to be arguing at the beginning that the Amish are really anarchists. They're just very rule-oriented anarchists and quite interesting people, and there are a lot of them, and they're pretty successful. But also, the book includes things like Islamic law and Jewish law and saga period Icelandic law and Somali law and a bunch of other systems. And Do you have a favorite legal system that you studied or learned about through the course of this book? Not really. The first one I got interested in long before the book was Saga Period Iceland, which was a society where, in effect, if you killed somebody, his relatives sued you. And if the suit went all the way and you were convicted, it was up to them to kill you. 
That is, you were outlawed, it was legal to kill you, but there was no state mechanism to do it. Uh, so that was an interesting system in which what I usually describe as a semi-stateless society, in that there was a law code, there was a court system, though most cases settled outside of court, but there was no executive arm of government to enforce uh, anything. Is that the overall idea behind this book that no. you've done? No. Is it the overall idea of behind the book is that all human societies face about the same problems. They solve them in an interesting variety of different ways, and they're all grown-ups. And therefore, you should take each of them seriously as one way in which some people at some place in time dealt with legal problems and try to understand it, see what problems it raised, how they dealt with them, and so forth. You know, when I read your book, uh, Machinery, of Free Machinery of Freedom, a few years ago, one thing that struck me is that when you'd originally written that, you almost predicted a lot of things that have come about. I mean, you talked about cab systems where people might just, you know, you basically described Lyft and Uber as it is today, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Do you have any sort of, I don't know, predictions about how, you know, a lot, a lot of people here are, are doing talks about uh, cryptocurrency and that sort of thing. Do you have any thoughts about ways that we'll see, you know, the, our monetary systems or our legal systems drastically change in the next, you know, 20 or 30 years from now? I have a book published some time ago called Future Imperfect. And I'm not really given predictions there, because I think the future, especially technology, is really very hard to predict. What I'm doing there is sketching out possibilities. So if the technology develops in a certain way, then you could have the fo following kinds of results. So that one of the particularly interesting ones I explore there is the tension between encryption and surveillance. That you've got one set of technologies which are tending to make online activity potentially more private than anything humans have ever lived in. And another set of technologies, namely surveillance, which tends to make real space less private than we've ever lived in. And then if you get both of them, what happens? And I spend some time on that. So that's one of them. To take something much less drastic, but that I'm involved in directly, uh, self-publishing, where it looks as though to a considerable extent the job that used to be done by publishers is disappearing, not entirely disappearing, but at this point it's essentially costless to self-publish a book, either as a print book or as a Kindle. Uh, you, There are some difficulties. You're going to have to find an editor and hire, but there are freelance editors. That's what my daughter does. I and mean, similar to podcasting, you used to have to, if you wanted to get your voice out there, you used to have to go to one of, you know, four mega corporations and beg them to put you on the radio. Now, similar to self-publishing, it's very easy to start a podcast. Even, again, if you don't have the skills, very easy to hire a freelance editor, freelance producers. Uh, it's, the, it's the kind of trend that we're seeing where people are able to take charge and, and bring things into their own hands as opposed to begging companies to let them do and, it. and similarly, you have to find a cover, but uh, the cover for the book that I'll probably be doing next is designed by somebody who was here yesterday who did the cover for the third edition of Machinery. Uh, the cover for my Legal Systems Very Different book was done by somebody who liked my writing who uh, I mentioned that I needed a cover on Facebook and she volunteered to do one. It's a really nice cover. So there are a lot of sort of decentralized ways. Some of them decentralized commercial in the sense you hire someone to do them and some of them decentralized what I sort of think of as a gift economy in which people voluntarily transact to do things because they want to do them and both of those are developing and those are certainly interesting things. What else will happen is very hard to know that one of the 
very big changes that might happen, though probably not in my lifetime, is if we solve aging. That everybody now alive is dying of an incurable disease that we call old age. It doesn't seem to be any inherent reason why that can't be solved. Uh, it hasn't been, and various people are trying. And if we had a world where people didn't grow old, it would be a very different society in a lot of ways, good and bad. Uh, so that's one of the ones that might happen, but I don't know what will happen. So are you a fan of the transhuman movement then from uh, your a libertarian perspective, just from the idea of eventually we can sort of replace so much of ourselves, whether it's our genes or just our arms or our eyes, that eventually we don't need to die. We can just replace everything as we go. <laughs> I think that's not the most likely way it'll happen. Uh, Again, I don't know the future, so uh, I would have said that it is much more likely that we will find ways of preventing aging or even reversing aging with the bodies we now have. Now, we already have all sorts of extra things that, you know, I've got a... Even just glasses. I have a silicon memory in my pocket, and it keeps track of things that I don't remember for myself, and, you know, beeps me when I'm supposed to be somewhere, uh, and obviously, you know, clothes and glasses and hearing aids and all of those things. But I think that the big change on aging is not going to be patching particular breakdowns. It's going to be figuring out more clearly than we have so far why it is that our bodies age and find ways of stopping and perhaps reversing that process. But I don't know if it'll happen. I'm just saying that there are a lot of changes that could happen and I don't think we can tell which ones will. But if people are curious, uh, my book Future Imperfect you can read for free from my webpage, which is daviddfriedman.com. Uh, I generally make my books either available free online or inexpensive from Amazon as Kindle or print books because I'm writing books mainly to get people to read them, not mainly as a source of income. Uh, so if people are curious about my views on the future, you can get them in much more detail by going to my webpage and reading Future Imperfect uh, than by an interview. We'll send them there. Uh, David, I'm curious how, what you feel about the strategy um, that the Free State Project takes, basically moving a lot of like-minded people to a similar area with the hopes that they will change things in a, in a way that can sort of bring about a more libertarian society, at least on the local level, and maybe more so even setting an example for how others can do it, whether it's through C-setting or you know, the, the project in Honduras, that sort of thing. What do you think about that as a strategy of getting just like-minded people to move to a similar area, a similar geographic area in order to create change in that way? It is clearly one strategy. That is, I don't think there is a correct libertarian strategy. Uh, I believe in division of labor, and I think that is one thing that works for some people and that could make the world better. Seasteading is something that might work and could make the world better. Uh, free cities is something that probably is working to some extent and could make the world better. Uh, I like to claim that the best form of government we've ever discovered is competitive dictatorship. That that's the way we run restaurants, that's the way we run hotels. I have no vote on what's on the menu, but an absolute vote on which restaurant I go to. And to some extent, the free city movement gives you some of that. And the other thing that gives you some of that is the development of more and more activity online. Because if you're working online, you can live anywhere and have the same job. If many of your friends are online, you can stay in touch with them and move. And so the more mobile people are, the less power governments have. And sort of you could imagine the limiting case if moving costs get close to zero is that governments are really just landlords. And they've got to compete to provide 
uh, an environment that people want. Uh, so that's sort of an interesting possibility. But but what will happen, I don't know. That generally things are getting both better and worse at the same time in different ways. That when I was in college, socialism was something that intelligent people could believe in. Uh, and if you really look, almost everybody now who says he's a socialist isn't. Almost all of them are really talking about Scandinavian welfare states, which are, in other than the welfare, are a little bit more capitalist than the U.S. as far as I can tell. Uh, so the, the old idea that if you wanted to make in, in to develop India, you needed central, you needed five-year plans, and similarly elsewhere, has pretty much died, and that's a big improvement. At the same time, environmentalism has, in a sense, substituted for socialism. It produces a new set of arguments for governments interfering with what people are doing. In one sense, that's an improvement, because on the whole, they're better arguments. Uh, on the other hand, they frequently, perhaps usually, are used to argue for things that are not a good idea, uh, because you're still facing the problem that individual voters have no incentive to be well-informed, therefore, whatever sounds like an good idea if you haven't thought about it very much tends to be what gets popular and governments have an incentive to find excuses for doing things for taxing people and controlling them and such so i think environmentalism may well on net make us worse off even though i would say that intellectually it's a better a more defensible argument than socialism why was. do you say it's more defensible just because you know theoretically there is an environment that could be destroyed by humans and therefore because because it is the case that your actions affect other people in ways that it is very hard to take account of through market institutions. So that uh, essentially the fundamental problem is that there is no workable way of running a large society from the center. If you, All human societies face a problem, which economists call the coordination problem. Given that you've got millions of people, and in order to do almost anything, a large number of them have to somehow coordinate their activities. That, you know, to, to make a car, someone's got to be making steel, and the right kind of steel, and the right amount of steel, and glass, and rubber, and all the rest. And there are two solutions to that problem, and the obvious one doesn't work. And the obvious one is you have someone at the top who says, you do this, you do that, you do that. And that works for very small organizations, but it doesn't work on a national scale, which is part of the reason the Soviet Union ended up poor. The other way is some decentralized mechanism where each person is solving a tiny bit of the problem. And to get that to work right, you need some way where when I make a decision, my interest is our interest. Some way where I am taking account of both costs and benefits to everybody. They are being converted into costs and benefits to me. So if there's a net benefit, I take the action. A net cost, I don't. And markets are a way of doing that. And in the ordinary, simple case, they do it almost perfectly. But if one of the things I'm doing is putting smoke out, which affects 100,000 people downwind, each of them by a tiny amount, it is very hard to use markets to control that. So there are a set of problems, what we refer to as market failure problems, where individual rationality doesn't produce group rationality. And the problem is that there isn't a solution, because 
the, mech the political mechanisms that people want to use to solve those are also subject to market failure, that the individual voter does not bear the net costs of his vote, the individual legislator or lobbyist or judge is making decisions where almost all the costs and benefits go to someone else. So we don't really have a decent way of making the political system make the right decisions. So we're just going to have to breathe the smoke on this one, I guess. That's one possibility, or else we will have a government that prevents the smoke, but also turns a third of the corn crop of the U.S. into alcohol on the excuse that it's preventing global warming, which as best I can tell it isn't but for the actual reason that they want to get votes from farmers and turning corn into alcohol bids up the price of corn and that means farmers like you. So I think you either end up with the government trying to solve the problem, but a government that can solve that problem creates a bunch of other problems, or you end up with the problem unsolved. You know? so. David, finally, uh, what is your favorite part of being here at Porkfest? Whenever I'm walking around, I always see you chatting with people. Is that kind of the one thing you like doing? That's, Just that's, talking about these ideas is obviously something part, you're passionate part about. Part of it is certainly talking with people. Part of it is an environment with lots of cute little kids around and sort of generally friendly people. It's a pleasant, relaxed kind of place. The, when I showed up Thursday, it was raining, and there were a bunch of people over there, uh, largely in, in shorts and such, doing playing, doing dodgeball in the rain. And I thought that was sort of typical of what, what Porkfest is like. And they're doing it now in the sun. Uh, Maybe so. you go play some dodgeball when we're when we're done here. Probably not. I'm not sure I'm flexible enough at my present age, though it's tempting. And I'm not very good at throwing things, so I'm afraid I would be a failure at dodgeball. Except truth bombs. Yeah, no, I'd be much, I'm more tempted by the boffers because I, I'm much better with a sword than with a ball. But I'm not sure I'm going to try that either. Well, David, it's been a blast talking to you. I look forward Thank to your you. talk later. We'll see you around. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right, I'm here live from Porkfest. We're not really live, it's pre-taped. Pre-taped from Porkfest here with presidential candidate, Vermin Supreme. Vermin, welcome to Porkfest. Hello, and nice thank you well. for having me here at Porkfest. As you can see, it's a beautiful day, and there's porcupines left and right, and everywhere you can look, uh, the Have quills are Have you seen many out. porcupines around? I've been looking. Uh, just, just the human variety. Okay. <laughs> just the human variety. Uh, what exactly brings you here to Porkfest, Herman? Well, naturally, uh, as a libertarian, I, I think this is one of the uh, finest uh, libertarian events in, in all of New Hampshire, all of New England, uh, perhaps even America. Um, because, of course, uh, I love the state of New Hampshire, the great people of New Hampshire, and um, this is where I know a lot of people from, uh, the Liberty Movement. In fact, New Hampshire was uh, had a lot to do with my conversion to the libertarian uh, train, if you will, uh, over the years, meeting the various uh, activists and uh, um, seeing what it was all about. What kind of reception do you get from libertarians about your sometimes controversial positions that you take? Um, some of them would, some people would say they don't all quite align with the NAP. Others might. You might make an argument they do. One of your positions is, is of course, mandatory toothbrushing. So can you explain the, your position on that from a libertarian aspect? Um, well, of course, it's very. The state has a vested interest in your oral health. Uh, obviously, uh, um, you know, dental health is uh, an, almost equivalent to mental health in a way. Uh, studies have shown that uh, lack of flossing, for example, uh, can lead to Alzheimer's. Uh, fact. I, I'm not being particularly facetious Do on you that. Floss daily. Um, not daily, no, but I'm not uh, accusing uh, you of fairly often. Alzheimer's Whoa! What kind of ambush? Like that, uh, what kind of ambush question is this? What, what I kind don't of mean to imply. Whoa! Uh, I, I'm going to walk off the set just like Ron Paul. Good day, sir. <laughs> Nah, just kidding. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. So, uh, I once again, I mean, we have to maintain 
uh, some perspective on it, okay? Now, here's the, the Venn diagram. Herman's imaginary campaign. Okay. I got a picture. Let's okay, see it. reality. All right. And there's there's an overlap. <laughs> okay, so we, we got to concentrate on the overlap. Now, of course, I could give you the answer from you know the imaginary vermin uh, campaign, my perspective of uh, secret dental police and, okay. and this, that, and the other thing. Now, is it very libertarian? Obviously not. However, am I making a point? Maybe I am. <laughs> I'm not saying I am. I'm not saying I'm not. It all depends who's asking. You know what I'm saying? Um, yes, I am seeking the libertarian uh, nomination for the presidency. Um, and the libertarian party is, of course, the only party uh, that is foolhardy enough to allow me to even attempt <laughs> such a thing. When I attempted such a thing with the Dems, they shut me down fast, they did as did the Republicans. Stage, huh? Not even close, not even into their events. Uh, but the libertarians and the libertarian party seem to have uh, welcomed me, invited me into their uh, environs with welcome arms. Uh, they have a real appreciation uh, for my work. Uh, because, as you know, I'm a highly respected political satirist, and uh, yes. and that means that all you is this satire right now. Hold on a second, it's I'm debatable. Once again, it's, it's, I'm wait, no, it's the overlap. Like I say, there's there's that overlap there, and uh, so I'm trying to bring uh, what I have developed this character, uh, this mythology, uh, all these, uh, you know, the toothbrush and the zombies, and uh, the audience that I've cultivated and de developed, and, and, and let me say the de demographic is a lot of young people, a lot of potential uh, uh, people who might join the party, a lot of people who might actually vote. Uh, so this is my first actual campaign. You know, I will say every other campaign uh, has been for the lulls. It wasn't a real one. However, this campaign is much different. So you're filing because the, I have, the paperwork and uh, yes, all that I, stuff? Yes, I, I have a Camp, I have a 527 political organization. It's called Pony Up America. Um, I am filing with the FEC as an official candidate. I have a campaign staff uh, uh, who have uh, had experience in previous libertarian campaigns. I am actively seeking delegates uh, to attend the Austin 2020 uh, convention. Um, with a little bit of luck, I have every intention of uh, making it to the debate stage. Um, I have an undeniable base of support in the Libertarian Party. Now, once again, uh, some people have a, a slight problem with that. And once again, if I was not me, let me say, there, now, there are arguments to be made that I'm a very good candidate for the Libertarian Party. There are arguments to be made that I am not. If I was not me, I would be strenuously arguing against it. I would say, Vermin Supreme, the guy with the boot on his head, for president, I say that's probably not a really good idea. However, because I am me, um, I, of course, can only go with the best possible arguments. Uh, a lot of people seem to have a problem with the framing or, or, you know, how can it be framed? And I believe it is in the framing. And I believe that the Libertarian Party can put up a joke candidate and not be considered a joke party simply with the saying something to the effect, we are the Libertarian Party. We are a serious party. We have uh, ideals. We, we, we have uh, uh, vision, visions. We, we are actively working towards a new society. But the duopoly presidential election has become a total joke. Here's fucking vermin supreme. Ha, ha, ha. Um, is that sort of the broader goal of what you're trying to do here is to point out that maybe people, some people do take politics too seriously and in many ways, especially the system that most people accept, that is the real joke if you really you know, break it down. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think making fun of uh, politics is, is sort of like pissing on fish in a barrel. Uh, it's very simple and easy to do, and I've just been very lucky to, to find a particular way to do it that uh, seems to resonate with a lot of people. Um, you know, I've, I've been very lucky. You know, I work in the presidential uh, 
running for president. I mean, that's a crazy thing in and of itself. It's this very tiny niche. Uh, but once you're doing it, you're working on a national and international scope. One of the beautiful things about running for president is that it's a self-declarative statement. All you have to say is, I am running for president. It becomes a fact, indisputable fact. No one can can't prove argue it. it. You can't argue it. So it becomes a real thing. So it, and uh, by presenting myself uh, you know, with these uh, wacky platforms and, and, the, and the, the magic boot that I wear upon my head, um, you know, I've managed to amplify my free speech, my First Amendment right of, of speech a million times. If I was just a normal guy on the street, dressed normally, speaking normal things, it would be very easy to ignore the, uh, a person like that. But I have it's found hard to miss it. I have found this formula, and so I make an offer to the Libertarian Party. I am offering my services as a candidate. Um, you know, it's a natural extension of the of the thing that I've been doing for 30 years, and I believe that it, it's feasible. Now, let's say, for example, 3.9 million high school kids graduate a year. Round that up to 4 million. Give me two of those years: 2019, 2020. That's 8 million. Uh, 17 million uh, college kids. So that's a pool of a. Uh, 24, 25 million uh, voters. If I can get one out of every four, that would garner 5% of the general election vote. So is that who you're looking at? People that maybe haven't even voted yet? People that aren't interested in politics, whether they're young people Absolutely. or they're even older people that maybe lose interest oh, and then they see you and say, there, well, there what's this guy all about? There are 40 million uh, Americans that are eligible to vote that did not vote in the last election. I, I believe, And once again, the gold standard for the Libertarian Party for the purposes of my presentation is 5%. There was 130 people, uh, 30 million people voted the last election. Uh, 6.5 million uh, voters would equal 5%, which would uh, guarantee uh, ballot access for the Libertarian Party. I believe that uh, with the, the character, with the, the universe that I've developed, uh, it would be very easy to uh, start presenting Libertarian ideas. I mean, I, I will. I have made the agreement that I will bring in the Libertarian Party platform as my own, because if I am representing a party, I am representing their platform. What is a party but their platform? And uh, personally, that I agree with a... 75% of the platform and the, the rest I'll just fudge. Um, <laughs> What's so, one thing in the platform you disagree with that you can think of offhand? I'm not going to go there. I'm not, okay. not going to mention it. it, it it's irrelevant. It, we'll, we'll, just, uh, we'll just leave it there. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a lot going for a possible Vermin Supreme candidacy. You know, and, and, you, it, and I do stand a reasonable shot at this point. Um, uh, I do seem to have a, a level of support uh, that is undeniable. And a lot of people see the sense in it. Uh, a lot of even pragmatic-leaning people realize that a Vermin Supreme campaign a candidacy would be pragmatic because they can see the possibilities. Uh, I'm simply presenting uh, the idea. I'm trying to get people to agree that it is not inconceivable, that it's not impossible. It's not you're not you can't dismiss it out of hand. Uh, that if I were the Libertarian nominee that we would get a whole lot of press attention, that we would, like, revigorate uh, the, the youth voter base, uh, uh, that we would reach out. I believe you have gotten a, a, some mainstream appearances already out of this. Is that, is that not right? Um, well, I've been attending a number of uh, Libertarian state conventions because my campaign staff tells me that's what one must do to prove that one is a serious candidate. Yeah, shake the hands um, and uh, yeah. kiss the Libertarian yes, and, babies. Uh, seeking delegates. Um, I'll be happy if I get on the debate stage with 100 delegates. Um, that will be fine, and I guarantee that I will make, help make that event go viral. Um, so there are things that I have to offer and that I'm willing to offer, and uh, I'm willing to work uh, in the libertarian context. Uh, it will be an informational campaign. It will be an uh, uh, educational campaign. It will be an entertaining campaign. It we will be bringing forth a, a lot of uh, wacky ideas, but it will be illustrating uh, the libertarian principles. And uh, that, that's what I think we want to do. More freedom, less government. 
That sounds awesome. One more thing I'd like to address, uh, obviously a major staple of your campaign, our ponies. So yes. can you address how the ponies work into really many different aspects of your overall presentation here? Well, everybody loves a pony. I, I've never met anyone who doesn't. I'm going to ride my pony to the hotel pool. <laughs> I'm going to ride it till I can't ride it no more. I'm going to ride my pony to my hotel room. Yeah. Got my pony in the sun. This guy's my got pony's songs. having fun, son. Ponies like to run, yeah. Ponies number one, yeah. Old town pony. Old town ponies. Yeah, we're going to ride those ponies. We're going to ride our ponies into a zombie-powered future. Ponies are delicious. Ponies are nutritious. Ponies are a renewable, recyclable resource that will uh, bring us into the 23rd century. We will be able to disengage from the uh, fossil fuel industry. It's a po it's a post-fossil fuel world. Ponotopia. It's going to be an amazing place. It's going to be an amazing race, and we'll all have ponies. Well, if you find interest in a pony-based economy, or just like what you're hearing here from Vermin Supreme, where can they find more about your campaign, Vermin? On the internet. The internet. Just go to the internet. You know how this works. Why do we need plugs anymore? Just start typing. Yeah, you YouTube Vermin Supreme, and you see all the crazy videos, and you just ask yourself, well, while you're watching any of my interaction with Chris Christie or Ted Cruz or any of that, just say, wow, what if Vermin Supreme was the Libertarian nominee at that point, and how would that have been different, and what kind of impact that would have really had if that were the case at that time? Uh, but you can go to verminsupreme.com. Um, I think you put an HTTPS uh, uh, colon slash slash in front Something of it. Something like that, a backslash. Uh, for for security, slash. for safety and stuff. Uh, these are dangerous <laughs> times on the internet. And, um, yeah, that, that, that's your best bet. Uh, kick down to my campaign for sure. I've got a 527. It's called Pony Up America. Uh, it's real. It's We're going all the way, people. All the way. Victory, people. Victory is ours. Follow me to victory. Furman Supreme, thank you so much. Best thank of you. luck here at Pork Fest. We'll see you Have around. Take care. All right, friends, and that is a wrap on the Pork Fest content. We also had some other stuff. We did a live Do Nothing Man that our Patreon listeners got to check out and see the video of. I also did a podcaster's panel. That was a really great time. Got to meet so many people, and I really can't emphasize enough how great it is to get out there to libertarian events, especially events like Pork Fest, where so many have moved to the Free State Project. It really does have the feeling of a great community there, as many of the guests that I interviewed on the show mentioned. I was not able to interview every single person that I was hoping to, but uh, Pork Fest is quite an event. And uh, there just becomes a point in the day uh, when I sort of expire <laughs> and I no longer am able to conduct interviews. You may even hear uh, in my voice at certain times. Uh, well, I, let's just say if you have astute ears, you can tell that it's a little bit later in the day in some of these interviews, uh, if you know what I mean. So, uh, But I did have a great time. Uh, you know, That really is the best part of Porkfest is not just doing the interviews, not just producing the great content, but just really meeting the people themselves and just hanging out around the campfire. Uh, it was really a great time. We got to hang out with uh, our friend Dan Smot, so we finally got to meet in person, who did a bunch of the footage for us, recorded all the video. Uh, we're going to put all the videos of these interviews up on YouTube uh, and our Facebook as well and try to really get some traction out of all this great content that we got at Porkfest. Uh, got to hang out with Jason Stapleton. He came with us from L.A., uh, Roger Paxton, uh, everybody that you heard. Everybody that you heard interview today got to hang out with, uh, you know, outside of the context of the interview. So it really is a great event to just meet all these people in person, realize that all these personalities that you see online, and even the people you don't see online, just the regular people, uh, the regular libertarians that don't have podcasts and don't have, uh, you know, video shows and all that stuff, uh, to have them all come together as sort of one big family really is an amazing experience. And I can't emphasize enough um, how much it, it 
what a what a joy it is to get to Porkfest and how how much I encourage people to try to get to Porkfest or similar events like it. Uh, Childerberg, we're gonna we're gonna try to hit that up next year in Texas uh, around the time of the LNC. So that that should be a great time. It's very far away, but we do have very loose pa- plans to attend that as well. So uh, you know that's that's my final words. I have nothing else to say to you guys. Oh, I do have one thing to say. I think you know what it is. Because really, all I want you to do is live long and live free.